podcast today in a variety of different ways. One, it is daytime. Daytime. We never podcast in the day. We just tried to do it in our usual podcasting location. In the studio. Our living room. Studio. <laughs> our studio, studio. Our podcasting studio. But usually we, when we podcast, it is night, and that means the birds are asleep. But the birds are not asleep, they're awake, and they definitely wanted to participate in the podcast, and it was very distracting. So now we're outside. At the end of the semester, we'll give the blooper reel. (laughs) So now we're outside. So we'll see what crazy noises you guys hear now since we're out on our porch. Um, The other thing I'm doing different is that I'm actually doing a totally different style of podcast than usual, which is that I have not picked quotes from the Tilly and Taro book. I've picked quotes from something else entirely. Crazy. 
Yes. That the students haven't read? The students have not read. Oof. So the reason i Heavy I'm, burden here. What'd you say? It's a heavy burden. Heavy burden. So the reason I've done this is because at the end of the day, I turned out I didn't love the Tilly and Tara book. No. Especially for podcasts. Didn't care for it for podcasts. Yeah. You should never tell students that you don't like a book. I know. But I'm telling them. Okay. But I think it was useful. So in spite of the fact that I didn't love the book, I think that it did something helpful for for the class, which is that because Tilly and Taro have such a huge knowledge base, right? Mm-hmm. These guys yeah, have senior like... Senior scholars. Senior scholars. They've had a million graduate students. They've read everything, right? Um, probably the, combined nearly, if you think about all their grad students. Oh my God, I can't even imagine. I mean, probably thousands of man of labor hours. Yeah. You know, involved in their. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so amazing. in any yeah. case, like they, so they have this enormous knowledge. So what they, what I liked that I think the book gave the students was that it gives all these like case kind of vignettes from like everything from like British protesters against like British tax collectors in the 1700s to like Mm -hmm. sex worker protests in France you know in the contemporary period to like jihadists and you know like everything in between right Central Mm -hmm. American civil Mm -hmm. wars so it gives them this real sort of span of like what contentious politics can look like like really wide kind of breath in that regard right and it shows some of the continuities that you see right. recurring again and again. Yeah, great social science that right. these things are, there's patterns right. here. That there's patterns Predictable that you patterns. see across space, yeah. across uh, time, right? We love all that. These things. So science. I think that's cool. Okay. On the other hand, it was like sort of a concept soup and a little hard to figure out sort of what to. Do you mean that they're lumpers? Because I mean, what you described a second ago sounds like you could put an interpretation on it that they're lumpers. Mm, I think. I feel like in trying to see the continuity, they kept making up new concepts. Got you, got you. That like, then they kept redefining and... Okay. So it became a little bogged, I thought. Bogged, yes. They're trying to create this... concept bog. Concept bog. I think in trying to like encompass so much that they ended up, it became a little tricky i think unwieldy unwieldy a little unwieldy i think that's actually the right word right because great stuff but then it becomes like a little unwieldy when you're trying to like cover so much and both include the similarities and the great variation because i think it's like they want to see both right so they want to be like this is all of a kind but all very different and unique and like and so then it just becomes hard to like try to figure out what to do with it right unuseful yeah, I in think in some ways, I think some things about it are very could be very useful and other ways are not. So instead, I picked out this article, which is actually from The Atlantic. Um, I had thought about assigning it for class, and then I kind of forgot about it. And then mm-hmm. when I was trying to think about what to do with today's material, I kind of re-found it, re-looked at it, and decided to use part of this article. It's called, Do Protests Even Work? <laughs> Interesting. Provocative. Um, Provocative. It's the kind of hot takes that you expect from the Atlantic. Hot takes. I focused mostly on the part that was about the BLM protests. Okay. So the article, if any students are interested, um, talks is much broader. Come out this summer. It came out in June. June. Um, It's by a professor named I don't know if I'm going to say this right. She's Turkish, I believe. Zeynep Tufeki. I've heard of her. Yes. She's big right now. She's big, I guess. Um, But I know about her because she's She's so hot right now. I don't know. I didn't know about her until, but she's at UNC and we still have friends at UNC. So one of my friends sent me this 
piece and asked me my thoughts. Okay. Um, so I read and it a while we're ago. Gonna, you, so you sent him your thoughts. Did you give him your thoughts? Or I did. did. You? I told him I yeah. thought it was good. Oh, and now it's so good that you're teaching it. I am. So anyway, I'm going to use it to actually bring out some of the stuff in the Tillian Tarot book. So I have a bunch of notes that I'm looking at from the Tillian Tarot book. Whoa. And you have a bunch of quotes from this Atlantic article. This is different than usual. I'll do my best. Should I begin? Go ahead. Okay. In a remarkable development in the midst of a pandemic, the United States is also witnessing one of the most broad sustained waves of protest in decades. It's been three weeks, and nearly one in five Americans says they have participated in a recent protest. So this must have been toward the end of June? I think June 24 was the published date. Right, so three weeks from the major mobilization following George Floyd's killing. Mm -hmm. Right, those really began Memorial Day. Is that right? Right. Yeah, roughly Memorial Day. Okay, all right. All right, so one of the things that I think is sort of stunning here is that the first chapter that I think chapter six it was that they read for today um, was basically about mobilization and demobilization. But one of the things I think we can think about here is that there's like two things that are sort of playing into whether people end up in the streets. And those are the barriers to mobilization, right? right, That generally prevent people from ending up in the streets. And then the facilitators of mobilization that kind of push people into Mm -hmm. the streets. Mm Right, so if we're thinking in those terms, um, what kind of things come, of barriers. To, come to mind when you think of the barriers sort of in this instance or more generally? Well, I think a number of the barriers include pandemic-related things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and Those absolutely. are the obvious ones, and the most recent wave of mobilization is people's own levels of risk tolerance when it comes to, you know, the pandemic. Right. Um, so I think that's well, that, those are some of the most obvious barriers. I, I mean, some of the other barriers, it seems to me, also would include, you know, maybe like an absence of connection to the particular, like that wave of protest was sparked by something that happened in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. right? And you may not feel like, well, this isn't really my community, right? So that may be a barrier. Like you may feel broadly in sympathy but not understand how your locality fits into that so an Uh absence of understanding of how your locality fits into this other specific mobilization these are some interesting things right okay certainly the first one is the of the pandemic is the sort of you know potential right impediments which i mean usually i feel like in this list of like cultural economic and social impediments i don't know exactly where you put a pandemic that's usually not in the midst of it but you know it definitely goes into the this sort of sense that there may be costs to participation and in this instance one of those costs has become right the fact that you're going out in the midst of a pandemic and that can be scary um the other thing that we see in this sort of movement is exactly what is kind of interesting and that Tilly and Tara talk about a lot, and I think they end up giving it the word scale shift or something. Um, I think it's a sort of strange Mm. conceptual term, but is that basically this is a local Minneapolis event, right, that rapidly not only becomes national, but but even transnational, Mm -hmm. right, that you have people protesting with Black Lives Matter signs in, like, Australia and Germany. Well, it is reinvigorated. When I was talking to Nick the other night, who's a friend of mine at Oxford, and he said that it, it has, it turned his campus into the center of this large Antle Cecil Rhodes protest that had been it had been bubbling up for many years, 
right? And then suddenly, because of the George Floyd protests and like the international Black Lives Matter mobilization, it caused his campus to then again be, right? And I mean, Cecil Rhodes has nothing to do directly. Right. With George right. Floyd, right. right, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that you see this sort of sense in which this becomes one of these sort of sparks that that leaves its locality, yeah. right? That it, it isn't like, so when we, in the book, I'll come back to the sex workers example, right? It stays very localized, that protest, right. right? Like the people in this community that are facing police harassment, right? Like they protest, but it doesn't become a wider movement for, right? It's not like it becomes a sort of huge national or transnational movement about sex worker rights or right. something, right? And it so just stays a very local affair. So why do some things shift scale like this? Well, I mean, this is an interesting question, and we'll see Do I have some, some that I think little, maybe okay. talk about this. Um, I think some of the, I don't know if I have any of the sort of why some shift scale in my notes from today's readings. Um, I guess I would say that maybe in some cases the, okay, so the diffusion usually happens based on two mechanisms. Um, one is that, like, individuals actually spread mobilization stuff through their own networks. Okay. And the other is like a mediated kind of diffusion where it would go. Okay. Which that one I think, I think Tilly and Tara talk about brokers, so like activists that might literally go from place right. to place. But I right. think here you actually see the sort of mediated version, actually literally a mediated version, right? Like going through media. Social media and ordinary Sources. conventional media. Yeah, and I also right. think that particularly in this case, because of the um, video coverage of the Floyd mm -hmm. murder that had a profound impact on a lot of people. Yes, that it was a mediated. It. So it yeah, really was straight. this kind of mediated in the way of like actually yeah, thinking about media. it in terms of the media. Um, so those were his two kind of mechanisms of diffusion were these kind of individual like networks. And, then, and I'm sure some of that individual network stuff may have also happened, but I think less that than that kind of mediated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, right, other, I mean, except that, I, I guess I would think about, maybe that maybe I don't understand the the individual mediated, but it seems like social media in some ways is right. like a fusion of that individual mediation and the traditional yeah. media. Is that? Yeah, okay. and I mean, the other thing that I guess I would say on this is that there was an existing BLM organized network, right? Correct. So that this also sat, it wasn't like, the first time police had killed a black man and it had been recorded, right? right. This was... It came after... It came after February numerous, and March, right? Right, so that we had already... Uh, and, like, going back to Ferguson, I think, right, where we, I would sort of yep, think of years. where this, like, this kind of movement in its modern sort of version mm -hmm. kind of starts, right? Um, so, yeah, so I think that there you have also... You can think that those network... Act, those activists were already networked. They were not all in the same place. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that then this became another sort of spark to to, to street activism. Right. So I guess right. that would okay. be my sort of answers from the Tilly and Tara book and then also thinking broadly about sure. protest politics. Okay. Um, was I supposed to also Did talk? I, oh, I think we were going to talk about mobilization. One of the things about the thing, the initial one is, right, we generally all face what, gets talked about in social sciences as a collective action problem, right? Right. That we would prefer to stay home and let someone else solve the Take problem. Take care of the problem. Yeah, of course. Um, and that 
you know, that's one of the impediments to mobilization right. that, that has to be right. overcome. And um, should we also talk about, like, spurs to mobilization, too, yeah. at this point? So, I mean, I think going off of that, sort of what I just said about the video is that in some ways, and I think that this was how we saw it to some degree in the case of the, um, I keep going back to these sex workers, but I think they're my example that I have on this sort of sense that the grievance becomes insufferable almost. Mm -hmm. Like he, they don't say it in this way, but I think that's what they're saying. Like in this example, the sex workers, when they talk about it, it's like they're hassled by the cops so much. Like none of them want to act, but they're like actually like unable to live their lives and do their jobs without, Right. being harassed and that like just eventually becomes like an insufferable grievance and I think there's some element of that um, with the George Floyd killing. Certainly on the part, I think certainly among black Americans. Right. I think that's right. I mean, I think what has tipped the scales for so many white Americans to express sympathy but also to engage in shared mobilization with black Americans, I think is actually kind of a, a curious question. Yeah, and I think that there's actually okay. some interesting ideas about that okay, that great. come up in the Good. some of this article. So Good. You want to keep going? Should I just keep plowing yeah, ahead? All right. Keep plowing ahead. All right. In the short term, protests can work to the degree that they can scare authorities into changing their behavior. Protests are signals. We are unhappy and we won't put up with the way things are. But for that to work, the we won't put up with it part has to be credible. Nowadays, large protests sometimes lack such credibility, especially because digital technologies have made them so much easier to organize. When it can take as little as a few months or even weeks to go from a Facebook page to millions in the street, as we saw with the Women's March in 2017, a protest doesn't necessarily make the kind of statement it did in the past, when they were much harder to organize. Unsurprisingly, low-effort things don't communicate credible threats. Right. right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean... It reminds me of um, a scene in Malcolm X's autobiography. Oh, yeah? Where um, there's a scene in that autobiography where Malcolm X and uh, of many other men in the Nation of Islam face down a group of cops, I think in Harlem. Okay. And the way that the scene is set by Malcolm X is that you have all of these men in suits who are operating with extreme discipline and have no make no real movement against the police but just demonstrate that they are not going to comply. Right. And they they demonstrate it in a way that the way that he paints it is like all of these men dressed identically. Mm-hmm. All of these men with this identical affect and this kind of like Silent discipline. discipline. Silent discipline, right? yeah. And that, that in a way, I mean, I don't think he says it right, but there's a, a sense in which that silence is itself a demonstration of the power of this group, right? right. That like right. they are able to control right. this, which means they could channel it right. also, in a yeah. way. Right? So this is interesting because it comes into this concept that um, Tilly... I think this one started, maybe Tilly and Tara both, but they got into it at some point, which was that it's the acronym is WUNC, which kind of cracks me up because it's our old uh, NPR station. Yeah, um, with Catherine Braun <laughs> from our childbirth class. Yes, correct. Of course. Um, so in any case, so it stands for worthiness, uh, unity, numbers, and commitment. Mm-hmm. 
And so that this is like part of what he says that movement activists or I would, he has it in this sort of social movement section, but I think it goes to protest more broadly. Um, These are the things they're trying to demonstrate? They're trying to demonstrate, uh -huh. right? Okay. And I mean, the part of that worthiness one is like, he actually uses the suits thing. Like part of it right. could potentially be your dress. So that worthiness might be that you are like very like formal, you know, and sort of, disciplined mm -hmm. um you also see there with everything being the same that kind of unity yes right of and the kind of commitment i think all of yeah. those you yeah. like they're demonstrated right there the cops right yeah. they're like all this kind of stuff um and i think that he shows other ways of demonstrating that right i think sometimes that like explosive anger can also be could potentially fit into some of those categories um so i think i, I think, think in the, i think be, in this i think in the scene i think there's rioting in harlem and the nation of the men in the nation of Islam move to the front lines between right. the rioters and the and cops, the police, yeah. and the police stand down. Right. Is right. if I remember that, right. That's cool. It's a that sounds like an interesting scene. I mean, sure, yeah. it's from an autobiography, so yeah, yeah, take yeah. it for what it's worth. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I I, I believe it. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so there's some sense here that this is a little bit of like the numbers become less important if it's easy to organize and that like right that, that that becomes less of a it because seems less threatening right so but also the, there's less i mean in part of the ease of organization less also commitment, right there's less commitment but also less disciplining that's happening along the way right, right? Way to could, shepherd people from we could think about that as less unity yes and i mean i think we see oh, that in, some, in like all these protests yeah. right including the ways in which they have been becoming intermittently right violent i mean many mm -hmm. are peaceful but like that where we see that it's like this is definitely not kind of a unity like with like internal enforcement right when you right. think about movements that last right this is definitely like a movement but it it doesn't have the same kind of organizational discipline that some previous movements i think had it's interesting that numbers of. don't make up for that right I mean that. I mean that's partly what she's saying here is that like it doesn't matter the numbers and you just said it a second ago. But I mean, it's interesting that. I mean I don't think it's totally true that numbers don't matter, right? But I think it's just that they are less. They I mean, don't signal. They don't signal an underlying organization that it used to signal. Got right. You. So you still might be a little freaked out if that many people show up in the streets. But like, I mean, think about like okay. So when we were at the protests here in Syracuse. Okay. I mean, there was a lot of people at that first one. A lot of people. But there could have been a lot more people. And if we sort of imagine... Could there have? Could there I mean, could there have been any more people there, you think? I don't know. But I mean, I guess... It was a lot of people, I right? guess that, like... It was nearly a city block's worth of people, which for a right, city of our size is... Is not it's bad. I mean, I think it was a lot of people. I think... I mean, I, uh, it did prompt some action here, but I guess I mean, had that been even more enormous, right? It would have been more scary, I think, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And so I think that there is a point at which you could overwhelm. Sort of the expectations would be far beyond, right? Yeah. What anyone was expecting. I got you. Um, but yeah, I think some of there is some discounting now. I think because what was frightening and what is frightening, I think, to states and regimes is also about that organization that underlies the mobilization. Absolutely. Right? Because of this collective action problem where people will just then like float back into regular life and not do anything afterwards and not keep pressure on and whatever. So I think that you have, which mm -hmm. goes into sort of some other themes of demobilization that came up in this, you mm -hmm. know, in this reading as well, right? You want me to keep moving yeah, here keep a little moving. bit? Okay. 
the current Black Lives Matter protest wave is definitely high risk through the double whammy of the pandemic and the police response. The police, the entity being protested, have unleashed so much brutality that in just three weeks, at least eight people have already lost eyesight to rubber bullets. Plus, the pandemic means that protesters who march in crowds face tear gas and risk jail and detention in crowded settings and are taking even more risks than usual. Yeah, I mean, this was the part that I thought was insane when I watched these protests unfold throughout June. Is like, and I think about it now all the time, where it's like, I don't understand why police forces aren't, like, why police, I mean, okay, I, I mean, I, do, I don't mean I don't understand, right? But there's this part where it's like, if I were the chief of police, I would be like, the next person that shoots someone is gone. Yeah. And if I were the chief of police, I'd be like, if you pepperball someone in the eye, you're gone. Like, I don't understand how that's not the message being communicated because it, it like, when I watched, when I saw all these videos, it's like, well, yeah, like, I might not have been an avid defund the policer, but if I'm watching that, I mean, it's like you're giving the greatest propaganda to your adversaries. Mm -hmm. Just as a, a matter of course, I, I mean, it's bizarre. That that ri so in a way, that risk itself, the personal risk that one takes could actually be a boon to the movement. Right. I think, I mean, we see this a lot, and this didn't, we're going to talk about like the this. risk of being beaten, you could this create. Is, this is what I was going to say. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks when we do repression, which is that repression has, like, uneven effects. It doesn't always have the same effect. So it can work. And I think there's a card in a bit that talks a little more about this, but it doesn't okay. always work, right. right? So that sometimes it has, right. and we've seen that here where there has been it like is a risk. You're right. okay. heightened mobilization coming out of some of these repressive police actions, not just the ones that prompt the mobilization to begin with, right? The police brutality that we're seeing, but then the ones directed at protesters, right? So mm -hmm. that those ones directed at protesters have these very uneven effects. I mean, we can see it though, you know, personally, right, there's protests in Rochester, mm -hmm. and we thought about going on Saturday, and we didn't go, and partly we didn't go because they've been very violent, mm -hmm. and so, I mean, there you do see, like, it right. did suppress yes. some sense of, like, people like us that maybe have kids that don't want to risk, our risk tolerance right, is that, lower. Like, the risk tolerance yeah. becomes, you're like, well, if I, like, get... Or jailed, right? Yeah, I mean, but I if, can't... like, someone rams their car into me and I end up in the hospital, like, this in is In Rochester not... when my kid's out of town, yeah, this, like, this is, is kind of risky. Like, a good, yeah. You know, so that you do see that for... that The more violent the protest event, sometimes, yes, like, you, we saw the Portland moms, right? You know, right. that moms line or whatever, right? Yeah. Where you have people that would normally be sort of averse to this kind of activism that were, like, going, right? Right and standing down sort of violent police. But you also definitely see people not showing up at the events. And we also didn't go that one night in Syracuse, that very first mm -hmm. night where there was some violence, right? right? I mean, and again, it was like a calculation that's like, we have a kid, it's in a pandemic, like yes. one of us go to jail in the middle of a pandemic, like right. this is like, seems not the greatest, right. right? So, I mean, I think that there is definitely like, yes, it can spur some people into further mobilization, and it can also, I think, depress right. some people's activism because of that kind of risks, right? And the risk of repression is a right. you know, high one. And now including right. not just by the state, but by counter-protesters. Right. Yes, now. That's absolutely right. Right, that like, I might be as nervous about being... Absolutely. You know, At this point, far more nervous right. about well, that. Well, probably about <laughs> twin calls. But anyway, both are concerning, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think less I less predictable. I think the counter movement yes. than the police. Yes, action. I the see. The police action tends to be more predictable, predictable and visible. Right. Than the other. Right. Like you can kind of know when they're coming versus the car that runs right. its way into your. Right. I mean, good lord. All right, I'm going to keep moving. Keep moving. All right. Sustaining such widespread protests for weeks under these difficult conditions is no easy feat, and there are indications that these protests are already having immediate impacts. In Minneapolis, where the killing of George Floyd was the initial spark, the mayor called for sweeping structural reform. The city council passed a resolution to disband the police force and replace it with a community-led model, and the police chief pulled out of negotiations with the police union. Okay, so... This is just saying that these were somewhat effective. I mean, at least at a, a basic symbolic level, mm-hmm. right? This The resolution that the city council passed was largely symbolic, uh-huh. right? A resolution is just a resolution, right? It's sure. not, they didn't just say, you're done. You're done. Right? Yeah. But it's not nothing. Right. It's not nothing. It's not yeah. nothing. It seemed like, I felt like this Tilly and Tarot book, if the students were reading carefully, it was a little downer. A little bit of a downer on whether, what was this one called? Do protests even work? Mm-hmm. I feel like it was weirdly kind of like. You kind of answered that in the, in the negative. I mean, it didn't, but it, there were some moments where I was like, what are you guys saying? Um, and I think it's true that there is rarely a direct line between protest and policy change. Right. right? That like, so I'm not, there right. was a moment when they sort of were like, protest never call, is always ineffectual or something. And I was like, what? When it comes to policy change, which is, I think, clearly not true, but I don't think it's like, you don't go from street to policy change. It, there's just many things that are inter, intervening, right, between those two things happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the, I mean, partly I take it, I mean, part of what I understand by protests, how I understand them, and I'm not at all a social movement scholar. I'm a political theorist. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's about to get weird. Mm-hmm. Is that, like, the way that I see it is that protests are able to like bring new things into the realm of symbolic contestation. Right. Right. And yeah. that they are able to create new political symbols Absolutely. or to or or they are able to demonstrate that a, a an existing symbol is now actually up for debate. Yes. Right. I think Tilly and Tara feel more confident in saying that part. Okay. But I think that then it was kind of like as though that I think it's just a slower road between policy change and sure, the other. But sure. like that not that it's I mean everyone wants to denigrate symbols, but like I don't know, man. Yeah. I mean you know me. They I know matter. you. They matter. They, they matter. matter. Symbols. I mean you gotta read your Murray Edelman. Yeah. Longtime listeners will know of our fascination <laughs> with Murray, Murray Edelman. Edelman. Um, I mean, the, the place that they saw in this book, the contestation and manip- manipulation, but not, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense of symbols, was having a lot to do with the role of religious institutions. Yeah, they are the primary keeper yeah. of symbolic authority still, even as, yeah, well, less maybe not. now, I think, but certainly. They still they, have a hold on some potent symbols. They do, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we saw, uh, this isn't really relevant, I don't think, as much to the current BLM stuff. And there was though, that crazy nun, right, at the at the Republican convention? I don't remember. But I mean, you maybe. did see that whole thing that happened with the church um, in D.C., with yes, of course. Um, photo shoot, <laughs> that right? Was... And I mean, it was interesting. You saw it there too, where that church was being used um, as kind of what they described like a... as. A, we're going coming back to the sex workers in France. The um, 
as a what they call a free space, yeah. which one of the things yeah. that happened with these sex workers is that they kind of took refuge in this church. And it was this discussion about how oftentimes churches are res- like respected as kind of off limits for police. It's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that mm-hmm. in sanctuary movements, a lot of people right. that are um, face deportation will like basically live in a church because yeah. so far it has been reasonably off limits that the police won't intervene while they're in the church. Um, but they broke that in this fr- France example. They just like stormed the church and took out the sex workers. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Um, and I think we see an example of that in the church in D.C. with the BLM, right, where they were using that as like a station for water mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like sort of make you know, like as a, like, a, I think it was like a medic tent, if I remember correctly, they were kind mm-hmm. of using it mm-hmm. and then they just sort of, you know, blew through with a sort of repressive force and whatnot. So that's like, like kind holding of, up that Bible. I was, yeah. And then he held up the Bible. So that's like outside of the, that churches tend to have these significances that are both that they have their powerful symbols, they're certifiers of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. They often have a kind of interesting relationship with states where they may have some freedom, especially in authoritarian regimes that other actors, especially other collective actors, are yeah. not granted. Um, and they also... That is really... A, and I don't want to go there. Sorry. If we're thinking oh. about diffusion, they also potentially... They tend to have both national and international networks, depending on what kind of uh, church but or religious institution, right? But that you end up often getting not only national reach of some of those, but mm-hmm. those people are also internationally connected often within their kind of mm-hmm. religious mm-hmm. orders or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just sort of a side note. And that wasn't really directly related to this BLM stuff, but it was came up a number of times, both with, they read about it, not with just the France example, but also with solidarity in Poland, really right. reshaping, yes. like using Catholic symbols as yes. kind of part of the yeah. movement against the authoritarian regime. Okay, so here we are back to Tufeki. Does that mean high risk or difficult to pull off protests can always work to scare authorities into implementing change? We can't just say yes, because the authorities have another option to meet such actions. Make them even higher risk through repression until the protesters give up. Sadly, repression works. No matter how brave the protesters may be, a state often has a lot more capacity to inflict costs than ordinary protesters have to withstand them. Yeah, so that's sort of back to what we were talking about. Yeah. That, I mean, and the state can come in with such force. I mean, some of the things that are very visible are like you think Tiananmen Square, right, in China back mm-hmm. in, what, mm-hmm. 89, I think, right, where the tanks roll in. I mean, that at some point, if the state chooses, they can really bring the hammer down. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, there can be legitimacy problems. It doesn't always, again, it doesn't always work, but yeah. it certainly can work to, you know, crush a movement. And then in some cases that, creates, um, it may crush that movement completely, right? But it also sometimes, as the book talked about, can create like violent radical splinter groups, right? So that like maybe a peaceful movement ends up having to go underground, but then a violent sort of flank, you know, realizes, well, we're not going to get anywhere. And so they form a more revolutionary kind of Right, And we've seen that in plenty of examples of, especially, it's, it's more common in authoritarian politics. It doesn't happen as much this in one, democracy. I'm going to keep reading because it seems like it just yeah, go going it. riffing on what you're saying. So why don't authorities always ratchet up the repression until people give up? Why do they sometimes give in to protest movements? The key to understanding that is also the key to understanding the true long-term power of social movements. Movements and their protests are powerful because they change the minds of people including those who may not even be participating in them, and they change the lives of their participants. So I like this. I like a couple things here. 
the first thing I like is this separation, which I feel like we talked about last time, is the that um, on the one hand, in the first two sentences, she says protest movements, but then later she says movements and their protests, right? So separating mm -hmm. like the individual actions from this like larger kind of sense of movement. I like that a lot. But then also I feel like it was reaffirming to me of something I was thinking about earlier about how watching the police brutality, mm -hmm. right? Even if it dissuades me from actively engaging a protest, mm -hmm. like because I'm more afraid of the risks, like it, right. it, it demonstrates a higher level of risk than I'm willing to assume. Right. It also could have the effect of making me more sympathetic even if it hasn't yet plunged me over right. the sort of risk precipice. Right, right, right. right it right. hasn't made it so intolerable. Right. But it has pushed me closer. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I gave you this long passage from the very end of her thing uh -huh. at the end that I think goes hand in hand a little bit with that of, you know, just why people end up engaging in protest movements. And I think some of this push, right, right push towards our moral sensibilities being, yeah, like, ch challenged, is that the Not right? challenged, like desecrated. De yeah, yeah, right. right? Yeah, I mean, yes, right? like the, someone is trampling all over what we think is right. Yeah. And so that the, they're getting away with it. Right. And so the, the more that we watch that, like, and then sometimes too. And that there's no recourse. Right, that there's no recourse, right, that these things are still. Certainly you can't rely on other, like, obviously we can't rely on, I mean, it seems clear that we can't rely on civic officials to rein in the power of the police, right. which I find terrifying. Right, which is a little terrifying. We've seen that all over the place. I mean, you think about Everywhere. like the, you know, in Portland where the mayor theoretically should be controlling the police, but seems unclear, right? That the, eh, I mean, it seems pretty clear yeah. that no matter what the hell happens with this whole movement, features of democratic accountability need to return to those police departments. Yeah, that right? they are lacking. They are They're lacking. certainly lacking in democratic accountability. Yeah. The, the connection to the people has clearly been severed. If the mayor's like, my hands are tied. Right. Well, <laughs> like, you're the mayor, you're their boss. Or if the city council's like, we can't do, well, yeah. I mean, then we're, Who is do we've yeah. clearly got a problem. And right. if, if, what's, if what the problem is the police union, right. if the pro I mean, I don't know what the hell the problem is. I don't right. want to tell tales yeah. out of school here. Yeah. No, so, I don't, I, but but, but I it's think, true that I think that we've seen a lot of this insane sort of where the democratic accountability is like people are just like, well, we can't do anything. <laughs> like what? 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 <laughs> I don't understand how that's even possible. Yeah. All right. Um, I should keep going. Yeah, there's only two more. There's cards. only two more cards. This may be a quickie. How long have we been going? We've been going for about thirty-five. Okay. But well, there, these okay. may. I may be unleashed, too. This may... I'm starting to feel a little... This one gets at one of the things we were talking about earlier, so I didn't want to sort of scoop the conversation gotcha. of it because I knew it was you coming. Knew it was coming. Later, All right, so, so here we go. Black Lives Matter protests are also succeeding in creating a generational shift. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Civics, with a Q, an online re survey research firm, found that 65% of people under 34 support the Black Lives Matter movement. That's That's sad. Well, just 19% oppose it. I mean, surely they have other demographics. I would feel like it's anyone under 50 at this point. But anyway, uh, such generational shifts are important not just because young people are the future, but also because shifting culture also affects people who are older or in positions of power. Andrew Breitbart, founder of Breitbart News, dubbed the platform for the alt-right by Trump's strategic advisor, Steve Bannon, had once famously said that all politics is downstream from culture. Once culture shifts... The rest can unravel quickly. 
Yeah, that seems probably... I guess that seems true enough. She tells this story then about basically okay. she, she her next example. So I think that this sounds is, good, but this I need, is interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. It. Okay. So the first I'll finish the the par the paragraph, the rest of that paragraph where I, maybe I cut you in parts. I can't remember. It's basically she has this long thing about the LGBTQ yeah movement. Yeah, right? that was and where she's like basically public opinion changes with young people. Yeah. And then, like, rapidly political change happens. Right. And that it, it's sort of like... And then it's partly a cultural shift in, in, in the sense of, like, just there are more... It's not just that young people get on board, but partly there's been, like, a change to the culture. Like, the popular mass culture has been a little bit more right. affirming. And then once young people are hooked, then the kind of, like, the, the dialectic of that that feeds back and... Young people are like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, I saw it on TV. Like, what is that guy, Will? He's gay? Cool. <laughs> but then, right? I, like, also, like, the is whole thing. Is that right thing, that it's in Will and Grace? I mean, yeah, I, don't remember. I, think that, I think that was right. That was probably one of the early. Yeah, that and Ellen, right? Shows, so right? Ellen yeah. comes out, and then it's like, fuck, we got to get Will and Grace. We got to have a gay character. <laughs> well, but I think that, like, it's like, so some of it may be about that. I'm not sure whether it's just about. Well, I mean, it's not like I'm not sure, but I, I just mean, I think broadly speaking, when I sort of think about the change from like when I went to college and when I got to college and there was no LGBTQ organization, yeah. Yeah. right, to the, to James talking about being in high school, my nephew, uh -huh. who is, I don't know, he's recently graduated from college, so he's not that much older the than the- last five years, right? Right, yeah, he's not, he can't be that much older than our current yeah. students, right? A little bit older, but not that much. Um and saying that, like, it was actually harder for him in school that he was a nerd than that he was gay. Right. Right? Where he was like, yeah, the fact I was gay, no one gave a shit. Right? Like, right. It, like that I was studious was, like, you know, yeah. way more problematic socially than, like, yes. that I was Yes, I gay. imagine many students of ours would agree. Right. But that's, like, huge in this sort of, like, period of, you mm -hmm. know, a couple decades. Massive um, change. That you have that kind of radical shift. And so I think that it is, I, like, what causes that cultural shift, I'm not saying, but it's, like, Part of this was that as you see that cultural shift, that then the the laws, like the political institution, public policy, such as it is, right, sort of comes following that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which was, I mean, there was a very active and organized gay rights movement. Yeah, of course, right? so not to take anything like, away from that. Well, no, this is oh. actually, I think, adding to it, right? That like part of what that movement did was, I think... Affect a cultural affect shift. Affect a cultural shift. Yeah. Um, so... So yeah, so that you see that cultural shift. Man, that happens changing culture is such depressing, demoralizing, <laughs> burning out work. You know it's what I mean? True. It's, it's true. really difficult. Like I think that I think that but people I think underestimate is, that. I think that this is like I th feel like um, what's her name? Tufeki. Tufeki. Yeah. The Tufeki is like a little hopeful here, though, right? Where she's like, of course, the, like the tides are changing with young people's views on this, where that you might actually then be able to get some shifts because yeah, that there is like you know. That we've had sort of a cultural shift in what was what was she looking at? I can't even remember. She was looking at what uh, that civic public study opinion stuff about how many under thirty fours. But what was the thing they were support Black Lives Matter? Support Black Lives Matter, right? So that yeah. you have like this sort of widespread support of this movement, which is like, you know, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. I guess the our political time is very different than the political time in that period of the gay rights movement successes. I mean, yes, I think far more volatile. We have a very, Far more volatile, very, much less predictable, Yeah. right? I mean, yeah. we can no longer even predict peaceable transfers of power, Yeah. right? Right, 
Yeah. So I versus think, like I mean, the Clinton like, years and the nineties well, when like that gay rights the, well and like that shifts like were this, happening. when the political shifts happens under Obama, right? Which goes a little bit yes. into this thing about influential allies and like institutionalization. My thought is evolving. Like what a great <laughs> I mean is that Unreal. what Obama said? That's what, that was Obama's line, yeah. It was like, when he got pressed on it early in his thing, he's like, you know, my thinking is evolving. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, cool. Glad glad to know that yeah. your thinking has, is, has, is, evolving. is evolving. It's evolving. It's good. But in any case, that uh, like I think that there is this part where one of the other things that we saw in that period was that we had like influential allies, yes. I would say, right? Yeah. There was influential allies empower for those social movements yeah right so like we we have a very different national context in that period versus now and so now you have the sort of flip because the other thing that we know yeah that we have influential enemies the other thing we know that happens that influential racists also in the, well that's true too i mean that's just factually true oh 100 percent. there's a lot of influential racists yes. right now i think that's like very important but that, what i was going to say was that um, the the other thing that can happen, and that I think came up also in this book with about the women's movement, is that sometimes movements that are attempting to change culture uh-huh. then spark big counter movements. Oh yeah, right. And so we saw that with the women's rights, and I think that we are also seeing that currently with BLM, right? So as opposed to the LGBT, which did I don't mean that 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 certainly we right we had the defense of marriage and like you know there was like tons of stuff again Huge. that was counter mobilization, yes. but I think. Right now that this is, the counter-mobilization is pretty intense, right, that we have. And like you said, that there's um, a lot of people in high positions of uh, cultural and political authority that are sort of promoting kind of more uh, counter-movement frames, right? Yeah, that seems true. That seems um, true. So yeah, so I think that it's a, it's a different moment. It's like there's that hopeful part, but then there's also a really I think I a mean, push I think on the I other side. The, I think that the the um what's the word I'm looking for here? Um god. Like the uh diversion, not diversion is not the I can't think of the word right, but like that that what we've got here is politics and culture. Like these politics and cultural institutions going in opposite directions, right? So here's what I mean, right? While we have a politics that seems to be totally dominated, not totally dominated, right? But we, where we have an ascendant counter, counter protest mm-hmm. uh, allies, right? Like basically the, the, the opponents of Black Lives Matter currently hold power politically. That's true in the sense, though, I mean, this is the interesting thing, and it's not just about democratic states, though, more so in democratic states, but there's always multiple centers of power, right? Very few states are so centralized that there's no multiple centers of power. So, I mean, the presidency is where there's a big... I think all I'm trying to say, I think you're right. But just just to be clear that there's not, it's not a monolith, the, you know, the Uh, state. Anyway, go ahead. I just feel like the the centers of mainstream culture uh-huh. are much more pushing towards, like, I got the new issue of Vanity Fair. That's how uh-huh. I use my old miles from the thing. <laughs> I like to see what's happening with the world of mainstream culture. It's this. It's it's guest edited by Tanahazi Coates. The whole oh, thing. Fascinating. Yeah, the whole thing. It's a cover story. Of Tanahazi Coates has reconstructed Brianna Taylor's mother's life story 
and the story wow. of uh, Brianna Taylor's death. That's the cover of Vanity, of Vanity Fair. Fair. Right. Is a woman from Louisville, Kentucky, who grew up in Grand Rapids, who is not what you would call a hyper-educated black bourgeois woman. Right. Yeah. Talking in her own voice. Right. As the cover story of Vanity That's Fair. It's amazing. Right? It's amazing. And I feel like the bifurcation. You didn't there, tell me that I could just smell the perfume wafting up the stairs. Yeah, it was delightful, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure delightful is what I would use. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I um yeah. Anyway, I just feel like as hard as Trump is going for anti-black lives matter. Right. There is not necessarily equally, but it's like in the opposite direction, many of our mainstream cultural right. institutions yes. are turning. Yes, I think now, that's true. That to me, like, I don't, I mean, I just feel like I that's, don't know what's going to happen. It's kind of a, whew, it's kind of a scary thought to think about such a, a separation of culture yeah, and, politics. and politics. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, scary is not necessarily the right word. It just becomes, it's, it's never been so intense. Yeah. In my lifetime. No, I'm not saying it's never been so intense because I think during, right. I think the hippies were pretty intense right. for people. Right. But, I mean, it's never been this intense in my lifetime. Right. And I don't think it's just because, like, my age. No, I You know what I mean? It's not our, it's not our age. Politics didn't look like, the, it, it's like, uh, yeah, anyway. It did not look it like this. It did not this. look like this before. No. Not even during the Lewinsky business where... Not even during the Reagan years when the culture wars started. It's no. like, oh my gosh. All right, so here's the last one. Yeah, this is just our sort of her, our call out for, uh, you know, from all Zainab to Fecky. Do protests work? Yes, but not simply because some people march in the streets. Protests work because they direct attention toward an injustice and can change people's minds. A slow but profoundly powerful process. Protests work because protesters can demonstrate the importance of a belief to society at large and let authorities understand that their actions will be opposed, especially if those protesters are willing to take serious risks for their cause. Protests work because they are often the gateway drug between casual participation and lifelong activism. And sometimes protests work because, for that moment, the question in the minds of the protesters is not whether they work short-term or long-term, but whether one can sit by idly for one more day while a grave injustice unfolds. And perhaps that's the most powerful means by which protests work, when the cause is so powerful that the protesters don't calculate whether it works or not, but feel morally compelled to show up and be counted. Yeah, I think that's probably right. It's, it makes me think, when you were reading it this time, I had obviously read it earlier, but there's this um, scholar, her name's uh, Elizabeth Jean Wood. She teaches at Yale. Mm -hmm. um, and she's written on um, the El Salvadoran Civil War Revolution, however you want to call uh -huh. that. Um, and her book is wonderful. She's a wonderful scholar. Um, and she talks about one of the things that she talks about. So you had these, it's a very repressive regime. The regime was like slaughtering whole villages of campesina, mm -hmm. of peasants, um, like the kids, the women, the animals, right, right. like not just like, yeah. you know, like nasty. wholesale, like Nazi slaughter. And you still have people joining the, supporting and joining the sort of revolutionary forces. Um, and one of the, in all the interviews that she did, one of the things that she coins it something like the pleasure of agency. Yeah. Which she basically is like that, like she has these sort of like, like people's telling their stories where they were like, well, I just had to do something. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I just, 
there mm-hmm. was like, mm-hmm. I just had to feel like I was doing something, right. right? And that there was this sort of sense of this like pleasure and agency where that just becomes like a, you know, yeah. There's so little that can be done in this context and then, you know, to act becomes like a... Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I feel like that's... That's... Thing. I mean, that connects to like a lot of stuff Hannah Arendt talks about in the human condition. If I go back to like political... My political theory roots, I mean, that's like... Right. That's politics. Right. Right? Is that moment when you can act... Right. And right. so, I mean, it's sort of why you would say that it really does politicize someone. Right. And that someone isn't really politicized until they have acted. Right. Right. And that that is, I suppose, in a way, you know, the real, I mean, it's the real, it, it politicizes people. That's what makes protests right. threatening. Yeah. Is that it politicizes people. Correct. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think we covered all of the things, well, more or less all of the things that I had on my notes from, from Tilly and Taro. There's some things about demobilization that we didn't cover that. Um, that sounds like a downer. Let's not I was, cover that. No, I was going to say oh. that if the students wanted to talk more about that in, in section, we okay. we certainly could. Um, but I think we, you know, talked about most of the things that I had on my on my list. and uh, Should we call it a wrap? I think we should call it a wrap. So hey, first outdoor podcast. Podcast in the day. Yeah, well, now we'll send it through post, and, uh, you know, we'll edit this heavily. <laughs> we don't edit it at all. All right. Uh, yeah, if we are if we do it right. If we do it right. There, I don't yeah, have to bleep out anyone's had, name or yeah, um, <laughs> we had to bleep out a few things. accidental about. other things that I have to bleep out. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Last well, thoughts? No, just uh, we'll, we'll talk about this more on uh, both in the discussion sections on Wednesday and Friday, and we will it'll be all discussion. We're not going to talk research projects this week. We'll come back to that again next week. See you next week.